master of the winds of the western world. Hail Thor, hammer wielder, lord of lightning, lord of storms. Bring the wind that bears the waters, master of the winds of the western world. Call the cloud and all it utters, lord of lightning, lord of storms. In the Black Void Sea, near Ankelion, with Thane and Huskarl sailed Guderic. To the Starford he came, that ancient stronghold, hard by the warprift, abode of demons. Forward he bade his great armada, sons of Fenris, mortals and tech priests. Forward to glory, murder make, and vengeance. Forth went the Jarl, fleet behind him, fate before him. Field he kept he, oaths he had taken, all fulfilled them. Forth sailed Guderic, from the saga of Torm Guderic, called the Outlander Jarl, lord of the eleventh great company of the Sixth Legion of Astartes, recounting his masterful and potentially suicidal use of a warp rift to bypass the mass defensive fire of a Ramillies equivalent star fort to appear in the middle of a wordbearer's fleet. His gallant action destroyed much of the traitor armada and allowed the star fort to fall back into loyalist hands. Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of Lost Transmissions, a Battlefleet Gothic podcast set in the Age of Darkness. I'm here with our Jarl, Austin, and today we are going to talk about his personal legion, uh, the Sixth Legion, the Space Wolves. Take it away, Austin. Bilka Fenrica, or The Route, Uh, and I make no apologies for calling them that constantly through this episode. Uh, because I'm neither uncouth nor unlearned. So, this was actually one of the harder ones for me personally to write rules for, because they are my legion. And it was hard not to find just like, God, you know, the route, they kick so much ass, they should just be better than everybody because they are. (laughs) Stephen reined me in, and we put together something that I think is fairly fluffy uh, and provides a lot of tactical uh, interest for the fleet. So, uh, their special rule is called the Longboats. There's no escaping the wolves of Fenris. Asteroid belts, nebula, and even swirling warp rifts offer no protection with the wolves on one's heels. Vessels with the Stardis crew may re-roll command checks when attempting to navigate celestial phenomena and when ramming. Attack craft launched from a Stardis vessel may re-roll any result of one when moving through celestial phenomena, uh, which does not include blast markers. So essentially, it makes them real good at exploiting places that other fleets would rather avoid, like asteroid fields. Uh, Asteroid fields, for those of you that don't know, You take a leadership check. If you fail, uh, you take D6 points of damage. As, well, you know, we've all seen the Star Destroyers and Empire Strikes Back. It's like that. Um, And then the attack craft, likewise, uh, on a result of one when moving through Celestial Phenomena, normally it removes the attack craft as, you know, you've seen the TIE Fighters in Empire Strikes Back. Same same basic system. And I felt this was very in keeping with the wolves. And I know there's some people that are going to be like, oh, the wolves, like in the fluff, in the the black books, they say they're not great at like void warfare. And that's one of the reasons why they don't get any bonuses for fighting, right? 
they're a very straight up and down legion uh, during the Great Crusade when it comes to space warfare. Like obviously they're Marines and they train for this their whole lives, so they're still better at it than you know some random. But they might not be quite the sailing masters that uh, one could hope for. Uh, that being said, and here I'm going to talk 40k for a little bit. Uh, in the old Space Wolf books, uh, the Ragnar Blackmane series, which I read growing up and therefore kind of uh, adore, and some of the other stuff that's come out more recently, like uh, The Emperor's Gift, some other places, they talk about the wolves being really good sailors uh, because they have a cultural affinity for it, right? And they just sort of port over their experience with longboats on a two-dimensional sea to spaceships in a three-dimensional sea. Uh, and I feel like that's something that could mesh with the heresy time frame pretty well. Uh, because most of what you see in the Black Books and other places about the wolves not necessarily being great uh, voidsmen seems to revolve around some of their early stuff. Uh, so, and again, this is headcanon, me loving the Legion and trying to sort of put these two kind of disparate ideas together, is that the Terran-born Space Wolves aren't great. <laughs> like they're, they're not great at sailing a spaceship. However, the Fenrisian-born ones are. So as the Legion kind of you know moves through the Great Crusade into the Heresy, fewer and fewer Terrans and you know in command of ships, more and more Space Wolves, they get a little more about it. And uh, the other thing is when they go, uh, when Russ goes to kill Horus, and they fly through some hellacious stellar phenomena that they are kind of advised to not even bother going into. And of course they take a bunch of damage and ships are lost. But to me that kind of is what this rule is all about. Right? We're not saying you automatically pass getting through. If you're on certain special orders, you'll test on a 3d6 leadership instead of a 2d6 leadership. And even with a reroll, that's not always, you know, it's not a guarantee. Uh but what I hope it'll encourage players to do is take those sort of Vilka Fenrica level risk, right? You're willing to put your ship through that asteroid field while on all ahead full, because if you get to the other side of one piece, you're going to beat the crap out of whatever's over there because they didn't think a sane person would try it. It's true. And if you can say anything <laughs> about the wolves, they are not what one would consider sane. Sometimes the wolves make world leaders look... Uh, you know, level-headed. Yeah, they are perfectly willing to do the batshit crazy thing or a thing that looks batshit crazy on the surface if it uh, leads to a beatdown later. And my favorite and now forever enshrined on the internet version of this uh, was when Steven and I had uh, a little dust-up near the Ancalia Starfort. Uh, Jared had put together a joint mega battle where there would be a Zoe Mortalis for a big old space station. And Steven and I, playing Word Bearers and the Sixth Legion respectively, uh, 
We're going to have a fight to try and get reinforcements to our various sides while the guys on the station were fighting for control of all the various guns and turrets and doodads on the station, uh, as well as a fancy mega cannon, which would affect our game. And it started real bad because uh, I launched a bunch of, you know, Thunderhawks and all that sort of stuff to get my reinforcements onto the station. And I mistimed it, and the traders had all of the turrets. Yeah, it bears noting that this wasn't, that our turns didn't necessarily sync up perfectly with the, uh, the Zone Mortalis turns. Yes, so it, Austin and I would play through a couple of turns while they went through one, and the at this period that Austin is referring to, right about the time he launched them and right about the time they actually got to the station, uh, the traders gained control of the fire control rooms. Yes, which I, I really liked as a concept, even though it was a little backwards, because technically a BFG turn represents more real-time than a 30k turn, but that's neither here nor there. It was a lot of fun because you couldn't quite rely on, you know, well, the Jared was making announcements at the end of every turn what the situation was, but we weren't paying super close attention. And, you know, I set a bunch of Thunderhawks at the station to land our troops, and Stephen was closer to the, the mega battle table, so he looked over and said, hey, who's got the, the room that controls the turrets? And a trader just sort of waved at him and said, me, and all of my transports got, like, all, all the, everything. Like, there was a Titan, like a Warhound Titan that I was supposed to be transporting, like 2,500 points of 3,000 Space Wolf Reserves, just dead in the void. It was real it was, bad. It was real ugly. Uh, and to compound this, uh, Steven's fleet through the vagaries of, you know, good maneuvering on his part and some uh, just mission shenanigans, was already pretty much at the station. So he didn't have to worry about shit flying through the void and getting shot at or intercepted. You know, he was close enough that if he launched attack craft, they were just there. So he could pick his moments, and that moment had come. Uh, and I realized there was only one thing to do. Because the whole point of the mission was the Star Fort was def defending uh, like a stable warp route, which was represented by a warp rift on the table. Uh, and warp rifts, for those of you that are unfamiliar, so what a warp rift does is it blocks line of sight and torpedoes disappear and stuff disappears. Ships that go into it have to pass a leadership check on 3d6 to navigate it successfully. If not, they're lost in the warp. They're just gone from the game, uh, and if you're playing a campaign, there's a good chance they're gone forever. Uh, however, if the ship passes the test, it can be repositioned up to 2d6 times 10 centimeters away from the warp rift, pointed in any direction. Uh, now, the traders had the gun batteries as well as the turrets, so I realized that if I just sailed in my original course, I was going to be slaughtered through massive firepower. So instead, yeah, I went we a little had the crazy. Big fancy gun too, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, and the big fancy gun. Like you had, you had everything at that point, I think. Uh, so I sent my flagship, an Oberon class battleship, and I think three other cruisers, pretty much all the heavy hitters in my fleet, 
you've certainly a dictator went in there with yeah, you. Yeah, like the, the Oberon, a dictator, I think my lunar uh, gothic a combination, uh, a and a pair of Dauntless. I think that's what it was. You no, know, yeah, Dauntlesses. Don't lie. All of those went through the Warp Rift. And because of the reroll leadership for Celestial Phenomena, all of them made it out. And suddenly, instead of you know having to cross that killing ground, I was just in the middle of Steven's fleet. Yeah, it was real rough. And uh, <laughs> it just blew it straight to hell. And uh, it was amazing. And it, it turned around the void aspect of the game entirely. Because it was looking like a sure loss for me, and it, it quite quickly uh, ended in my favor once the uh, the debris had kind of cleared and we saw how beat to crap Steven's fleet was. Um, and that's the yep, sort you of... Jumped on, you jumped on my flagship, mm-hmm. you jumped on my carrier. I think one... Uh, I think I had a, a strike cruiser that went into the warp rift and followed you and only by the grace of Zinch came out on the other side. And it offered some token resistance for a little while before also exploding. Yeah, it, it was just, like, it flipped the battle of drop of the hat. And if I tried it with another Legion, I know I would have lost at least two of those cruisers. Because I remember you being very excited, and then, you know, remembering I had a reroll and being sad again. Yep. <laughs> Life is hard. Life is hard, Life and then you hard. die. And then you die, <laughs> reduced to spinning space debris. Um, but that's kind of what I think the Sixth Legion is all about. You know, taking the big risks... And sometimes if your balls are big and metallic enough, it'll work out real well. Yeah, it's true. So that's it. You don't get any fancy benefits for shooting guys or having the enemy close or far away or anything like that. You just sail into harm's way and hopefully come out the other side. And, of course, you get the ramming bonus, which is a fun trick. Uh, doesn't come up too terribly often, ramming in Battlefleet Gothic. Uh, just because it is, you know, multiple leadership checks to do, and your ships could get hurt when they do it. But uh, when you need to ram something, it's nice to have that reroll. It is. It is. Now, here's the here's the kicker. The question: Do you know how to pronounce the Gloriana's name? Because I don't. Crankle. What? Crankle. Crankle. We'll go with that. You can just say H- the Sixth Legion flagship. H R A F N K E L. Hmm. Crankle. Crankle. Yeah. That ship uh, <laughs> <laughs> is the Space Wolf Gloriana. Sorry, the Vilka Fenrika Gloriana. Um, it's 500 points. And much like the Swordstorm before it, it looks like a battle barge. And that's because it is. It is Battleship 12, 20 centimeters, 45 degree turns, 3 shields, 6 up armor, 3 turrets. It has port and starboard weapon batteries, firing at 45 centimeters at firepower 12. It has prow launch bays, launching Thunderhawks and Annihilators, 3 squadrons each. Or 3 squadrons from the bay. Uh, it has a prow lance battery, strength 3, 30 centimeters. It has prow torpedoes, strength 6, 30 centimeters. And it has a dorsal bombardment cannon, strength 8, 
30 centimeters firing left, front, and right. Um, now, the ship, the... Damn it, I still can't say it. The 6th Legion flagship. The 6th Legion flagship uh, is a brawler. Uh, it's got a lot of it's got a lot of gunnery and not a whole lot of lances. Although one can argue that a dorsal bombardment cannon makes up for lances, given that they hit on fours and crit on fours. Uh, but for the most part, the ship is subject to the vagaries of the gunnery table, which can be a fickle mistress. Mm-hmm. But here's the good news: she gains a left column shift on the table when firing on targets with nine hull points or more starting HP hull points, or on crippled targets with eight or less starting hull points. So she's really good at starting fights, and she's really good at ending fights. Much like the Space Wolves. And and that's really what it's all about. Yeah. Yeah, you can roll up on another battleship, and or a Grand Cruiser, or even an experimental ship that for some reason has nine hull points, and just vomit ordnance onto them. Well, not ordnance, but space bullets yeah you can just vomit space bullets on i mean them, you can vomit ordnance onto them too it's a carrier yeah. <laughs> yep it's true it is true uh, in fact at its uh best range 30 centimeters the thunderhawks are going to have a very easy time to get where they're going and they're going to hop on them and just om nom 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 do all those fun things um it's a pretty unsubtle ship that's you know, it's like every it's it's closer in line to the quote unquote vanilla battle barge than some of the other uh, Glorianas that are based off of that class go because her only objective is to get in range and start shooting. Yeah, and you... she doesn't. Uh, I mean, she still counts as a battle barge for exterminatus, which we talked about last episode, and she counts as a battle barge for planetary assault scenarios, which we'll talk about at a different episode. So she's good at doing some other like fleet things, but for the most part, she wants to find some other target that's either real fancy looking and real impressive, or already almost dead, and just break it over her knee. Yeah, sort of the thought process, if you, you know, bring her to a fight, is find the other guy's Gloriana, because if you're bringing a Gloriana, let's face it, he's probably got one, uh, or find his battleship, Blow it to crap. By the time you've done that, uh, the battle will be well underway, and there'll be plenty of crippled cruisers running around trying to get out of harm's way or do that one last thing before they go. And uh, the Hrankel's job is to deny them that by blowing them into their component atoms, which she is real, real good at. Uh huh. Doubly so if you are playing with a narrative Clorianus. So still the same, uh, still most of the same characteristics. Uh, 20 centimeters, 45, turn, 45 degree turns, not 45 turns. Unless each turn is one degree, at which point it could have 45 turns. But anyway, I digress. Six shields. Still six up armor. Six turrets. So good luck getting ordnance through. Her weapons batteries go from 12 to 25. Her squadrons go from 3 to six. Nope, sorry, five. five. Had to zoom in a little more. Mm. Uh, her prow lance battery goes up to six. Her torpedoes go up to nine. And her dorsal bombardment cannon goes up to 24. So even more space bullets to hurl at the enemy 
and get that good column shift. Yeah, you'll have a bad time. Mm-hmm. And God forbid she's locked onto you. So if if you get, you know, capital ship closing, right, with with mm-hmm. my girl here, and you're within thirty, and you fire that twenty-four dorsal bombardment cannon at it, uh, you get a free shift. You know, it's a battleship. You're starting off the fight. Uh, that is twenty-two bombardment cannon shots at the target. Ooh-wee. That's a lot. It's real rude. Because that extra that extra left shift, man, that, that'll get you every time. And like Steven said, she looks like kind of a unsubtle instrument. But if you take into account the longboat's rule, where, you know, she can do weird things and warp rifts and asteroid fields and everything else, uh, it really, it does give it a trick up its sleeve that people, you know, just look at the stats don't expect, which I also think is a very six legion thing. You know, they, they come across as drunken brawlers, but they're not just that they're good at their job and their job is beating the shit out of other Astartes. Would you like a shout out on our podcast? Maybe discounts on our Teespring store. Maybe you'd like to vote for upcoming heresy grad school topics hang out in a private Discord server, or maybe even just getting a fun podcast sticker. If you're interested in any of that, consider becoming a patron. Patreon funds help for server costs and allows us to make cool content for you to enjoy. Patronage also helps us pay for projects such as our Nova Open Charitable Foundation Army, The Honored, and Ultramarine Zone Metallus Force will be up for charity raffle coming this year. If you're interested in getting in on the action, consider becoming a patron today at patreon.com forward slash rr30k podcast. Thank you. This month's podcasts have been made with generous support from our patrons, starting with our Praetor tier, Alex Selth, Nicholas Quenga, Jacob Dillon, Matthew Boyce, Josh Phillips, Mr. Baldwick, Gardner.Tree of Woe, Joe from Music City Heresy, and Chris Mack. Our Legion Centurion tier, we have Scott LeMay, Andrew N., Black Label Painting, Minis by Applesauce, Angry Boy, John Christensen, Mark Henry, and M. Hernandez. In our Sergeant tier, we have Aaron Maynard, Garrett Lowe, Travis Smith, Duncan, and Emily O'Hare. Thanks again. So we did, um, when we talked about Gloriana's in the very first episode where we went over one of the legions, um, we talked about the Invincible Reason. We mentioned that in between these two versions, the, the playable Gloriana's, quote-unquote, and the narrative Gloriana's, there's other rules other than just the firepower getting jacked up to 11. Um, and one of those, especially one of those rules that the Frankel can make good use of is one called Fleet Killers. Gloriana battleships host firepower surpassing even the strength of amassed warships and can mate out murderous damage with surgical precision. So, one of the things that uh, you can do that we haven't discussed before is you can break up your firepower and kind of uh, administer it to different targets. Uh, take a lunar... Uh, yeah, a lunar or a gothic? I can never remember. Which one has the weapons, batteries, and lances? Boy, a lunar. We can tell you're a chaos player at heart. It's true. Uh, I run murders. Murders in Hades. Uh, yes, the lunar. You could fire a lunar's weapons, batteries at one target 
and fire uh, her lances at a different target, were you so inclined. Uh, it normally takes a command check to do so, but a Gloriana, using these narrative rules, automatically passes all command checks to separate its firepower against multiple targets, and gains a left shift on the gunnery table before other modifiers are applied. Now, the Frankel won't gain that particular bit because she already gets that left shift. I think you're only going to, what, shift once? I mean, if I'm reading it right, she would shift twice. If you oh, know, she you get the, the left basic, and then if you fall into her requirements, a second left shift. That is true. So even at long range, the Frankel is still just dumping ridiculous amounts of weapons battery fire onto you. Uh, because even if she if she's outside of 30, her natural left shift for being a Gloriana is going to negate that right shift that she's going to get. Mm-hmm. Rather, um, And then if she's firing at, say, a crippled cruiser or a powerful uh, grand cruiser or battleship, she's going to get another left shift. Yeah, it's, it's almost... <laughs> It's almost too much firepower. Um, because, like I said, you fire that dorsal bombardment cannon at a crippled cruiser, so theoretically it has four hull points or, la- or less, right? Um, and it's, you know, moving away from you because it's running. Uh, left shift for being a narrative Gloriana, and they're super OP. Left shift for being the Frankel, and you're right back to throwing 22 bombardment cannon at it. Where a normal ship throwing that much for some reason would only be getting 12. So again, you asked for narrative Gloriana's, and we've done that, but... Mm -hmm. There's another one. You know, on your own (laughs) head, uh, be it. Yeah. There's another one that's actually pretty fun. For the Frankel, uh, because she does. Oh, before I get to that, uh, Fleet Killers also provides accommodations for specialist torpedoes. A Gloriana that has torpedo capacity, like the Frankel, may fire a wave of any specialist torpedo, but each type may only be fired once. So the Frankel can be on top of you, lashing out with weapons, batteries, on bombardment, and bombardment cannons on one side, and then right smack dab in front of her there's the enemy flagship still despite all best efforts hanging in there not spinning space debris yet praise Fire the lord and pass the vortex torpedoes yep so normally instead of just firing your regular ones you know you load up that good good dark age stuff and just mm-hmm. send it screaming and howling into nine miniature warp rifts or maybe you want to set it on fire, so you launch nine melta torpedoes. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's, you know, 40 centimeters away. It might be able to think it's fancy. Fire those short, short burn. burn torpedoes. Yep. When so they're the free, one, they're worth it. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I mean, free being the cost of friends. Yeah. But uh, carrier capacity is another Gloriana rule. Uh, all Glorianas contain not only massive stores of ammunition and weapons, but vast hangars filled with the deadliest attack craft that the Legion can muster. Often, these craft are used to ferry even the Primarchs themselves into the fray. So all Glorianas without launch bays 
have port and starboard launch bays that can launch up to six squadrons of Thunderhawk or Thunderhawk Annihilators, in addition to their normal armaments. Which, uh, the Frankel already has a prowl launch bay, so she does not actually benefit from that. But, once per game, any hit-and-run attack launched from a Gloriana can be nominated as carrying the Primarch and his bodyguard. This can be a teleport attack or a single assault boat. If the attack is successful, the stricken ship in question will automatically suffer a bridge-smashed critical damage. If the attacking wave is destroyed, there is no penalty. It is assumed that the proper measures were taken to keep the Primarch safe. So, Lehman Russ can, you know, be looking around, realizing he's kind of bored sitting there up on the bridge of the Frankel. So he hops in his personalized Stormbird or Thunderhawk or whatever... And just goes and decides to butcher an enemy bridge crew. It's fun. Everybody enjoys it. Yeah, and he does. So unlike most hit and runs, which kind of do that random critical hit, uh, a Primarch can just go straight to the bridge and kill everybody there. Which means it's going to be very difficult to now disengage because you are somehow still in the Harinkle's sights and not dead. Good luck with that. Yeah, don't get within 30 centimeters. That's that's the life lesson here. Mm-hmm. Or 45. Mm-hmm. Or be on the table. Go yeah. home. Yeah, just... <laughs> go, what's that? Narrative Gloriana? No, 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 no. You will Disengage. not make friends. Dis- yes, Disengage again, everything one. Steven is talking about, narrative Glorianas. Yeah, not, not regular Glorianas. Yeah, not the one you pay 500 points for and don't feel that terrible about yourself. Yep. So yeah, um, more more narrative Gloriana rules to go over. Hmm? And we're, there's still more narrative mm-hmm. time, so you can once again be aware of your folly by asking for this. <laughs> On the other hand, if you've got you know six thousand points of BFG and nothing but time in your hands, let us know how it goes. Yeah, it's true. Um. And that's just about all for the wolves themselves, uh, their actual rules. Yep. So we are going to shift gears and do what we normally do at this point and talk about a ship class. In this particular case, we're going to talk about one of Austin's favorite battleships, the Oberon. Yeah, I, I have to say, it's no longer one of my favorite battleships. It just is my favorite battleship. Um... And I, I got one. I converted it, actually. Um, playing Space Wolves, I just wanted a, an Oberon. I thought it looked cool. And this is, you know, why we were playtesting everything. Um, just because just I liked the conversion. And I was like, well, it looks most like an Oberon, so that's what we're going with. And the kind of conventional Battlefleet Gothic wisdom is that the Oberon isn't that great a ship. Um... It's got port and starboard weapons batteries, 60 centimeters, uh, firepower 6, dorsal 45 centimeter weapons battery, strength 5, uh, port and starboard lances, uh, 60 centimeters, firepower 2, and then a 45 centimeter prow weapons battery, firepower 5. Uh, the prow and dorsals can go left, front, right. Uh, and then port and starboard launch bays for two squadrons each, so a total of four. Uh, and then, like the Emperor class, 
that it is the precursor of, or I'm sorry, a, a variant of. Uh, it doesn't have an armored prow like most Imperial uh, battleships. It's five up all around, but gives a plus one to its leadership rating because of all the fancy sensor probes and whatnots that it has. And like, I think, every battleship can't use come to a new heading orders. Now, the internet kind of traditional wisdom for BFG is that it doesn't do any one thing well, and therefore is kind of a waste of a battleship. Uh, oh, and it's slow. It's only 15 centimeters. It's not a quick she's ship. She's very slow. Uh, but five turrets, because she's a carrier, so she's not going to get jumped on by attack craft or torpedoes that easily. Uh, but I have come to love her dearly. Because while she doesn't do one thing, you know, immensely well, like the Emperor or the Retribution or, you know, the Apocalypse or some of the other things out there, she does do everything you can think of a capital ship to do and does it better than any given non-battleship, if that makes any sense. Um, because, because again, like she's a battleship. She's 335 points. It's not a cheap ship, you know? Paying for all the goodies. Mm -hmm. But it's got a combination of everything that just makes it so nasty. Because, while yeah, you know, that Emperor might be, you know, have more attack craft. You know, it's got eight squadrons of attack craft to the Oberon's four. It's not going to survive a fistfight with it. So you just get in close, and the Emperor has a bad day, and you've got the turrets and the hull points to kind of weather that uh, attack craft barrage that it can send out before you're in range. Dealing with an Apocalypse battleship? Well, that's really nasty. It's got a ton of lances and enough weapons batteries to make you think twice about life. And nine torpedoes. But hey, the Oberon's got 60-centimeter weapons, so I'll just stay out of range and drown it with attack craft and long-range firepower. And, you know, win the fight that way. But here's what here's what I like about the, uh, the Oberon. Well, this is what I like about it on your behalf, because I hate being on the receiving end of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is that the closer you get to the Oberon, the more dangerous it becomes. Um... Because, yes, it has 60-centimeter guns, but 60-centimeter guns work better at 30 centimeters. Very true. Uh, on one side, I think if you manage to get in the sweet spot, you know, against that Oberon, it can level, what, six? Sixteen? Uh, yeah, 16 weapons batteries against you Yeah. before throwing out lances and then jumping you with, a so uh, with bombers. Yeah, it does do real well. Um, unlike kind of the gunboat uh, battleships, you don't actually want your Oberon to be in the middle of things. You want it to kind of have an enemy on just one of its sides, so you can bring the ten weapons batteries that fire left and right all onto the same target. Although, if you're firing in both directions, you can still put eleven weapons battery out either side, and two lances, so like it's not the end of the world. Yeah, she's... Um and because she's so slow, you don't really think that she's going to get up on you and just start drowning you in weapons batteries until she does. 
Yeah, You're like 15 I'm... centimeters. Okay, she's she's way out there. She's trying to make use of those 60 centimeter guns right now. I'll be safe over here. I'm gonna focus on these other ships that are about to get all up in my grill. And then you don't kill those other ships, and suddenly the Oberon is right there. Like, hey, buddy, mm-hmm. how's it going? Or Fortune one of my batteries. one of my favorite tricks is to just all ahead full with her, and you kind of cross yeah. that gap way quicker than expected. And you know, normally all ahead full kind of sucks if you injure move in kind of that thirty centimeter sweet spot uh, because you don't really have the firepower to do any damage. But she can still throw out uh, twelve weapons, or sorry, not twelve, nine weapons battery on that side, yeah. and that's a respectable amount of firepower. Yeah, not so the Sonadol. She's she's yeah. mean. She, she is a classy lady yeah. and a real mean bitch. If you uh, get on the wrong side, yeah. For reference, all sides are the wrong side. It's true. Tackcraft get launched all around. There's no escape. Yep. Which actually makes her one of the few carriers that can consistently and successfully engage targets in the front arc. Mm-hmm. Because both her dorsal and her prow weapons batteries are all around. So she can throw ten weapons batteries on you to soften you up or to take down your shields and then just vomit attack craft onto you. Oh yeah. She's great uh, as a defensive or attacking ship in like planetary assault missions where you kind of know where the other guy is headed. Um, Cause like you said, she's got a good amount of firepower out the front and with the left front, right when ships do try to start slipping by her. Well, that just means you get even more concentrated firepower and have a bad mm-hmm. time. Nope. It hurts. So Sun yeah, she's my favorite. She's yep. a classy lady. Now, we said that the Space Wolves are real good at navigating celestial phenomena. But what exactly is celestial phenomena? Um, celestial phenomenon is the term used to essentially describe terrain in Battlefleet Gothic. Um, and it comes in a couple of different flavors. But what flavors you actually get are based on where you're fighting. Because unlike frontline games like Heresy, 40k, um, or even Titanicus to a certain extent, uh, there's you don't always fight in the same place. You know, when you're playing a game of Heresy, you and your opponent, you roll up your deployment zones, you set up your terrain, but for the most part, you know, you're fighting in a bombed out city. You're right. fighting in some zone mortalis thing. Not so in Battlefleet Gothic. Battlefleet Gothic is played in six battle zones which represent different stretches of a celestial system that you might be um, you might be fighting in and where you're fighting what which battle zone you're fighting in affects what kind of celestial phenomena you have so like when you play heresy again you know there's always a building there's always some trees there's some craters you know you essentially have the same thing that shows up in every fight just in a different part of the table. Um, but in battle zones, all the terrain is randomized based on a d6 roll. Um, and there's three ways to do celestial phenomena. Uh, Austin and I use the method of you, you portion out the table into six sections. And on a four-up, 
on a roll of a four up in each of those sections you generate some kind of celestial phenomena and then which celestial phenomenon you generate for that section uh, is based on again the battle zone you're playing in so like i said there's six of them there's the flare region and that's closest to the system's sun that's basically like you could reach out roll your window down and get a sunburn because you're so close to the sun well evaporate yes you'll actually evaporate and die, <laughs> like you're, but it, it's you know, real bad it's a really bad sunburn it's it's like the solar flares or not even the solar flares what do they call them when uh just like those sunspots? big loops Plasma. that connect sunspots yeah i know what you're talking like about those are just in the flare region yeah right you Your are one board edge is the sun yeah <laughs> the flare region is closest to the system's sun it is an area scoured by incandescent fires of superheated gas from the surface of the sun and fierce radioactive winds Planets this close to the star are almost always death worlds, places too ravaged by the sun's heat to be habitable to life. Now, on a D6 roll in the flare region, you get, on a 1 to 2, you get solar flares. On a 3, you get radiation burst. On a 4, you get asteroid field. On a 6, or on a 5, you get dust clouds. And on a 6, you get a planet. Somehow you got a planet. Yeah, you know, something closer, like one of those tidally locked, you know, closer than Mercury sort of suckers. Yeah, just a, just a rock ball. Um, yeah. Probably very volcanic. Uh, no ocean to speak of, unless it's like liquid metal. You know, something crazy. Yeah. After that, you get the Mercurial Zone. And in the Mercurial Zone, the sun's ferocity is still awesome to behold. But solar flares less frequently reach out to burn everything in their path. Occasionally, a planet can be found in the Mercurial Zone, which can sustain limited life deep underground, or constantly moving around its dark side to shelter from the sun's rays. Now, in the Mercurial Zone, you get mostly more of the same. Uh, solar flares, radiation bursts, asteroids, dust clouds are more common here. And again, on a six, you'll get a planet. And then the inner biosphere and the primary biosphere are where you start getting, um, quote-unquote, typical sci-fi stuff. Uh, as the inner biosphere is reached, planets become more hospitable, although often their atmospheres are noxious soups of harmful gases. Nonetheless, colonies and hive cities occur in the inner biosphere of certain systems. And in the primary biosphere, a balance is struck between the burning heat of the sun and the icy cold of the void. Most inhabited worlds lie within this biosphere, and it's here that the bulk of a system's defenses are built. So... The primary biosphere is where you're going to find, like, Earth. There's your Earth-like planets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the inner and primary biosphere are... Uh, the inner biosphere, on a one, bad stuff happens. Uh, you roll again, and you'll either get a radiation burst or a solar flare. But here's where you start to get more of the, the physical celestial phenomena. You get asteroid fields... Three of the options in the inner biosphere table are dust clouds again. And again, on a six, you get a planet. And in the primary, now you've suddenly lost the threat of the sun reaching out and slapping you. Yeah, that uh, you're now far enough away that you're not going to be surprised by it, and you're not going to fight a battle in it. Yeah. Uh, one to four is asteroids and dust clouds. And then five and six is when you get planets. So this is the one where you're most likely... To get a planet. 
This is where you're going to fight your well, exterminatus. Well, an Earth-like planet anyway. Yes, an Earth-like planet. Uh, this is where you are almost always going to fight your exterminatus and your planetary assault missions. Mm-hmm. So after that, you have the Outer Reaches. And the Outer Reaches of a system are the realm of gas giants and worlds generally too cold and too harsh to support life. Many battles between ships occur here as the system defenders attempt to prevent enemy ships from reaching the primary biosphere. So here's your your picket zone. This is where most of your fleets patrol, where they're far enough out to catch raiders, incoming fleets, stuff like that, um, and catch them in time that if they fail to contain them, you know, the enemy isn't right on the doorstep yeah, of can Planet Bob. Detect things and give a little warning so, you know, mm-hmm. your PDF can say their prayers, because when does PDF ever do anything? <laughs> womp, 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 womp. Oh, no. uh, this is actually almost identical to the primary biosphere generator. Uh, the results are switched around a little bit, and you'll generally get more of whatever you roll. But it's all asteroid fields and dust clouds, uh, and on 5 and 6, again, you get a planet. Uh, but out here, you're much more likely to get a big planet. Yeah, they they don't screw around with planet sizes uh, in Battlefleet Gothic. It gets a little ridiculous. So the small planets, you know, just sort of a Pluto, Mercury, Mars kind of thing, up to 15 centimeter circles, right? And then the medium planets, 16 to 25, which is already pretty big. And then the large planets can be up to 50 centimeters across. Uh, that's and the gravity well gets almost too, two feet. On the size. Yeah, it's a big old. And then a 30 centimeter gravity well. Uh, yeah. So they get wild once you start getting out here, and they can generate their moons and rings and all sorts of shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Yeah, there are no uh, generating planets is fun. It's not something we often do. But it is fun when they show up. Um, I've never gotten to play any of the binary planets, the ringed planets, planets with moons. So one day, yeah, it uh, it is. They are unlikely to get generated. It's all random generation, and it's Mm -hmm. normally on like a yeah, it's like a five or six. A large planet has rings around it, and they can be glass rings or asteroid rings. you can have yeah. D3 though, minus one moons. Oh. And it does bear noting that uh, even though we described the quote-unquote random generation method, uh, you can pick whatever stuff you want to be mm-hmm. in your in your games. Uh, that's definitely one of the three methods. It's just, I want a planet. Okay, cool. Put down a planet. Put it wherever you want. Yeah. Get right on in there. Yep. Get in there. Really explore the space. Make it yours. Right. Uh, And then so the very last one, number six, is Deep Space. And uh, I didn't say this before, but all of these battle zones, you roll for where you're fighting. Uh, There's six of them. It's handy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Most missions will give you like a, hey, this kind of scenario usually happens in this battle zone. Some will just straight up say primary biosphere. Fight in the primary biosphere. Do it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but in all instances, you can always roll. You can do whatever you want. But deep space. Ships coming out of the warp must appear some distance away in deep space or risk destruction among the graviton surges in system. Many civilized worlds have specific jump points marked by beacons to assist navigation. An ambushing fleet will often lurk near a jump point in the hopes of catching an emerging foe 
unaware. And deep space is where some weird stuff starts to happen. Yeah. Uh, one to two is asteroid fields. Three and four is dust clouds of various um, various sizes. Number five is that warp rift. This is the only place that warp rift naturally occurs without you just automatically deciding you want to play there. And number six is a small planet. Uh, and these are usually rogue planets in highly eccentric orbits. So when you're playing in deep space, no matter what the results are on your generating rolls, you only ever have one planet. And, and it's usually small. a small one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and on a four up on a D6 roll, it'll have rings. Hooray! Yay! <clears throat> yeah, the... The deep space, and they say deep space, uh, and your sort of instant thought is you know, the trillions and trillions of miles between stars. But that's not where fights happen, because space is big and it's hard to find people. Mm-hmm. It's uh, wide, you might say. Yeah, and indeed, good friends are too few. So what this is really talking about is kind of anything past Neptune, right? Pluto, God rest it. Uh, would be that small rogue planet running around. Mm-hmm. Or like out in the Oort cloud where you're trying to you know, find that traitor fleet that's popped out into existence. Uh, which yep. might be what the warp rift is. You know, a large enough fleet uh, detranslating will leave a warp rift in an area for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of the Most of the other vessels that you're going to naturally encounter out here are going to be ships on far-flung patrols, uh, little squadron, es- little escort squadrons, um, maybe one of those quote-unquote independent capital ships like the Oberon, which is supposed to be able to operate, you know, with minimal escort. You might find one cruiser out here. Um, so generally, when stuff like ship, when enemy fleets show up in the in the deep space battle zone. Uh, whatever they find is probably going to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not really a, a battle so much as a slaughter or a chase. Um, the bait is a good one for this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the small scenarios, and it's pretty much a fleet sees that one, you know, light cruiser out there on a the scouting, and the light cruiser is just making a beeline for the rest of the fleet, frantically broadcasting that that friggin' loyalists are here or traitors are here or whatever Mm -hmm. and actually there's one of the one of my favorite parts about the one of the only two battlefleet gothic books uh execution hour is you kind of think of battles at least in the in the terrestrial sense of heresy as being like a few minutes a few hours a day at the most you know like I yeah, think it's, it's not a siege. The, yeah, it's the been main over like Istvan engagement was like six hours, yeah. uh, and then followed by a couple of weeks of harrying and finding that bastard Korax. Um, but in Battlefleet Gothic, even the short engagements are like hours long affairs. So when, like Austin said, the bait when this is one ship who's just going as fast as it can to get to uh, its fleet and warn everybody while being pursued by a, by a bunch of enemies, that engagement scenario of detection to getting to the end, getting back home could take weeks. And 
I think in execution hour, when the Lord Macarius is running from the virulent, uh, it's like, f- what, two or three weeks? Yeah, it's trying like to escape. at least a week-long kind of like skirmish, fighting, running, translating the war. nobody sleeps during that time. Yeah, it's, it's a bad time. Yeah. Space is wide, and good friends are... So, for example, in, in the Blue Book, it, the Battle of Gethsemane, which is kind of the pivotal battle of the Gothic War, uh, the Imperial fleet finally finds the Chaos fleet... Uh, and it's a week-long chase of, you know, tracking down that chaos fleet, massing at Gethsemane. Then three days of both fleets being in the same system and sort of dancing around trying to find that optimal moment to strike. Uh, and then three weeks after arriving in the system, the fleets finally start to go in and go, like, hard at each other. And the the actual, like, oh, now everybody is throwing each other, throwing things at each other, uh, battle lasts for days. Like, it's crazy. Yeah, the Battle of Gethsemane is, what, a month and a half from start to finish? Yeah. Yeah, that's some Stalingrad levels of, of time. Um... But yeah, so outer reaches. That's that's where that thing kind of <laughs> happens. So what do these various celestial phenomena, also called tabletop features, uh, do? So we are starting on page forty-two of the blue book. Uh, forty-two has the battle zone map. Forty-three has the list of battle zones. Forty-four has tabletop features. Uh, the first one you have is gas and dust clouds. And well, these are, let's take a take a half step back. The first thing that happens is oh, the, the sunward, sunward edge. edge. Yep, uh, the sunward edge I'm not an Eldar. is exactly what it is. It's, hey, wh- where's the solar system's star? Uh, and that matters for everywhere, but I believe deep space, or Just possibly outer, outer reaches and deep space, primary biospheres. Once you're getting close, um, that starts screwing with the gunnery table. Uh, if the enemy is too far away, they kind of disappear into the heat haze of the sun and they're harder to see. If they're really close, they're kind of backlit and are easier to see. And it's exciting. But for every game, you always line up gas and dust clouds and asteroid fields on uh, facing the sunward edge. They have like a long, you randomly generate the size. They have a long edge and a short edge. The long edge is always facing the sun. Because they're supposed to be like rings. Sorry, Steve. You, you, go, you go right on ahead. Anyway, so yeah. Once the sunward edge has been determined, which again determines the kind of where the gravitational pull of the system's main, uh, main body exists, you start putting down your terrain. Um... The first one is gas and dust clouds, like I I was about to say. Uh, And these are almost kind of just like large blast markers in terms of gameplay. Uh, Gas and dust clouds represent areas of space with a notably greater density of mostly hydrogen gas or tiny particles of matter. These clouds may be left over from the formation of stars and star systems 
and the outer fringes of nebula, or protostars, or even gases ejected by solar flares. Um, gas and dust clouds don't, they're not going to hurt you the same way that asteroid fields were, will, or warp rifts will. And in fact, are just kind of, they just kind of slow you down. Uh, traveling through a dust cloud reduces your speed by five centimeters. If you end your movement or start your turn touching a gust, uh, gas cloud, you lose your shields. Don't ask me why. It's like glass markers, man. Yeah. Messing with your your shields. Mm -hmm. Now, it's just all kinds of stuff are inside of a blast marker. No one can see... Or blast marker. Gas cloud. No one can see you. You cannot shoot through glass gas clouds because they block line of sight. So they are actually really good terrain for setting up ambushes in. Mm-hmm. If you can somehow manage to begin your deployment inside of a gust, uh, dust cloud, then like you can just hide there forever. Especially if you're an escort and you don't actually have to start your movement. or uh, you, know, you don't have a minimum movement for the turn. You just hang out there. You can put a bunch of little torpedo-armed escorts inside of a cloud and just wait and then hop out and dump torpedoes into somebody. I've seen it happen. Yep. It hurts. It's real rude. Yep. And it or funny, you know, depending and on. And or funny, depending on which side of that you're on. Yep. Uh, next is asteroid fields, which are pretty self-explanatory. And like Austin said before, uh, you can attempt to fly into an asteroid field. You make a that command check to navigate. And if you fail, you take D6 hits. Now, the good news is, is that those hits will be absorbed on your shields. The bad news is you've only got two shields. Yeah, you can you can have a real bad time. And that's a ship. So escorts, just as a rule, get to re-roll uh, to navigate asteroid fields. You know, they're nimbler, they're smaller, they're not as likely mm-hmm. to get hit. But if the squadron does fail, every ship in the squadron takes D6 damage from asteroid impacts, and they will and probably all die. Yep. So, you know, be, be aware. Yep. And don't think that just because an asteroid field is kind of way out on the end of a battlefield, it cannot affect you. On multiple occasions, I have seen a crippled ship all ahead full to get out of an engagement and just barely barely touched an asteroid field, failed the, failed the navigational check, because if you go into an asteroid field on all ahead full, it's 3d6 instead of 2d6, and just get smashed to pieces and die. Yep. Yep. They are there. Respect the asteroid field. Yep. Think ye on, you know, Darth Vader's fleet when uh, you wonder if you should go into an asteroid field. The answer is no. The answer is almost always no, unless you're a space wolf. Vilka Fenrick are going to go into your asteroid field and kill all your dudes. Yep, they'll pop out on the other side. It's like, where did you guys come from? Just the rock forest. No big deal. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, Warp rifts, like we said. Oh. Any celestial phenomena is also a one in six death sentence to ordinance. Uh, except for warp rifts, which just are a death sentence. To with just, which just are a death sentence. But I don't know why in. you would ever fly into a warp rift with attack craft, because you can pick where they go, guys. Yep. Um, 
if attack craft or torpedoes fly into celestial phenomena, you roll a d6 on a 1, something terrible happens. Well, And they're all gone, the whole wave. I, I should stop you there. So GW, in the heady days where Battlefleet Gothic was being written, couldn't ever get their shit together on whether when they wanted a 1 and 6 result, it should be a 1 or a 6. Nowadays, when you roll 1d6 in something like 30k and you want a good result, you want to roll a 6. And if you want a bad result, or and if a bad result happens, it's going to be a 1. Technically speaking, if you go through an asteroid field, attack craft are destroyed on a roll of 6. That being said, use your common sense, talk to your opponent about it, uh, because I like I've been playing this game for more than a decade now. God, two decades. Let's not talk about it. Long time. <laughs> Cannot for the life of me remember which of the like things happen on a one and which happen on a six, and it's a pain in the ass to look them up uh, because you know how great GW is about providing things like indexes. So generally, like when Steven and I play, or you know any of the other local guys. A one is the bad thing. Your attack craft hit a dust cloud and blew up. A six is a good thing. Yep. Just keep it. It really in your doesn't head. matter which one you pick. You could pick three if you wanted it to. It doesn't. As long as, as you, it could as be a three. You, uh, as long as yeah. you and your opponent agree. A one in six yes. chance, death. Mm-hmm. Uh, warp rifts. We've already talked about warp rifts. You know, yep. you fly into them. You attempt the navigation to check. If you fail, everyone is gone. See you on a space hulk in 500 years. Yeah. If you pass, well, jump out, go hurt somebody. Yeah. Pretty much wherever you, uh, up to a good distance away. I mean, up to 120 centimeters away. Mm-hmm. You can do fun um, stuff. Planets. So planets are also we've discussed a little bit. Oh, so uh, one of the fun things: the gravity wells of a planet. Uh, mm-hmm. 10 centimeters for small, 15 for medium, 30 for large. If you're within the gravity well. Uh, a ship can get a free 45 degree turn at the beginning and the end of their move, but must turn towards the planet. And you don't have to move your minimum distance before you get the free turn. Uh, and it's it's optional. You don't have to. But that's a great way to slingshot yourself around, uh, especially bigger ships like the battleships that can't use come to a new heading, heading are a little uh, when it comes to maneuver. Just sail close to a planet. Be wherever you want to be. It's good times. Uh, And then you can also enter low orbit, which we talked about before and is a little ridiculous, or high orbit. Uh, And if you're in high orbit, you just don't move. Yep. Which sounds fun. You're anchored, but then your defenses. But then you count as defenses, which is the worst possible outcome for being shot at. And then yes. you can generate some rings, which are just either asteroid or dust clouds that loop the planet, like you would expect. And follow the exact same rules. Yep. And so. you can have moons, which are fun, uh, up to five centimeters in diameter, and can actually be quite a ways out, because they're placed 2d6 times 10 centimeters from the planet. Uh, so you roll like 2d6 and a scatter die on the planet. The scatter die points the direction to where the moon is, and then however far out Uh, and are generally too small to provide a gravity well. But if you wanted to go crazy, 
like Terra, our moon is fracking huge. You could put a small planet there instead and, you know, have a little gravity well and do some real fun figure eight flying. Yep. And then there's two other kinds of tabletop effects which count as celestial phenomena, but do not have a physical representation on the table. These are solar flares and radiation bursts. And this is where life gets real unpleasant. Uh huh. <laughs> so if you're down fighting in the flare region, mercurial zone, or inner biosphere, it's entirely possible for you to end up with solar flares. And the closer you are to the sun, being mercurial zone and flare region, you will end up with multiples of them. And they do stack in a sense, which we'll get yeah. to in a second. So solar flares. Most stars periodically release explosive bursts of energy over small areas of their surface. Of course, small in solar terms mean hundreds areas hundreds of millions of kilometers across. These huge flares of energy rush outward at tremendous speeds, flooding the vicinity with highly charged particles and magnetic shock waves. So, roll a d6 at the start of each turn, and if more than one flare was generated as part of the celestial phenomena, roll a d6 per flare generated. And that's what I was talking about when I mentioned that they stack. So if you're fighting in the flare region, for instance, you could end up with two or three solar flares at the beginning of each turn. So on a roll of six, a flare occurs. Each ship on the tabletop has one blast marker placed sunward of them. And any ships without shields will suffer one hit and will take critical damage on a roll of four or more. You roll a d6 for each ordnance marker, on a four, it's just atomized. So this is bad. And it's bad for two reasons, one of which is pretty obvious, and one is a little more subtle uh, if you haven't played a lot of Battlefleet Gothic. Naturally, if you get real unlucky, generate... Because I think it's a one in three chance, like in the flare region, to generate a solar flare. Uh, and then if you generate a couple and you roll those boxcars... Every escort on the table is dead. Mm -hmm. Because the shield is removed, and then a hull point goes. And that's... And like I've seen that happen. I've played yep. one where we had the misfortune to generate... No, no actual train was generated, but we generated three solar flares. Uh, and twice in the game, we had boxcars, and once we had all three sixes go. And it was horrible. Like all our escorts died. I think it was turn two that the escorts got atomized by the first double. Uh, but the other problem is, remember, when you remove blast markers, it's D6 in each player's end phase. And normally, in up to 2,000 point games, you can keep the battlefield fairly clear of debris. Uh, because, you know, you're generating maybe six a turn, maybe when you're actually shooting at each other. And then there's always that turn where you're doing mostly maneuvering and you can kind of clean up. But when solar flares start going off with regularity, the battlefield gets real busy. And suddenly, you know, one, you're already starting a shield down. That sucks. And then you're flying into blast markers. So you're not regenerating your shields. And you're going super slow. And everything just kind of falls to pieces. And like in, in the game I mentioned... My opponent and I both felt we were more fighting the table than each other. 
Um, so hey, don't don't fight in a sun. It's a bad time. Uh, yeah. The other thing that we played, uh, we generated in that game was a radiation burst, which just made our lives that much more terrible. Yeah, radiation bursts are the flip side of the coin to solar flares. Um, so just like a sol- like a sun or a star will just like vomit out these huge arcs of incandescent energy. A radiation burst is when they emit bursts of electromagnetic uh, radiation, radio waves, stuff like that. And these temporarily scramble communication traffic between ships and even disrupt uh, shipboard comnets. So commanding a ship in these conditions is very difficult, and for this reason, most commanders assiduously avoid the flare region of the local star. Again, you kind of have to be a little bit crazy to fight in the um, in the flare region or in the mercurial zone. But, as they say, needs must. So just like the solar flare, at the start of every turn, you roll a d6. And just like the solar flare, if you roll multiple radiation bursts, you roll a d6 for each one generated. For each roll of a 5 or a 6, a radiation burst occurs. So you roll a d6 to see what the interference level of the burst is, and all ships on the table reduce their leadership value by the interference level for that turn. So if the burst happens and you roll a 3, everybody's at negative 3 leadership for the rest of the turn. Yep. And, and if in you addition, thought... oh, go ahead. To the re- yeah. In addition <laughs> to the reduced leadership for the interference, fleet commanders may only use their command rerolls for their own ship or squadron. Yeah, so, so you don't get anything done. Bad. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't I'm not seeing uh, kind of hard to say what the rules as intended here is if you roll multiple radiation bursts and say you roll a two and a four do you reduce everything by six it says for each roll of five or six a radiation burst occurs and And then okay yeah yeah it i i think it you would roll you know if you have two radiation bursts you roll boxcars you roll 2d6 and subtract your your leadership from that and just not doing any orders it's, Congratulations, yeah. if, your leadership uh, is negative bad, five. Yeah, if it gets real bad, you know, you can have an entire fleet of ships just, like, wallowing around like toddlers without parents. Yep. The only good thing is that if you are screwed that way, so is your opponent. Yes. <laughs> you can all Double suffer together. If they are uh, cheating Eldar and just have a really, really, really bad time. Yeah, and remember, for the Flare region... Half of your terrain is going to be solar flares and radiation bursts. Yep. Right? It, it's real bad. Uh, yeah. Mercurial zone, about a third, and then there's a one in six chance in your biosphere. And these can really, like you said, really affect how the game plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, these the space wolves have no defense against this particular kind of... Yeah, it of turns uh, out you can't outmaneuver uh, something 100 million kilometers across flying at you at a significant fraction of the speed of light. The sun? Yeah, parts of the sun. Yep. <laughs> parts of the sun. Oops. So, um, that's pretty much it for tabletop 
for celestial phenomena. Yeah, that's the all the wolves. the crazy shit that'll happen to you. And now, uh, let's bear noting, uh, there is one other thing. If you are one of those people that have y- your hands on the various apocrypha that exist for Battlefleet Gothic, uh, the Warp Rift magazine, the Planet Killer magazines, the Book of Nemesis, there is additional celestial phenomena to be found in those publications. Everything from giant uh, wreckage fields to black holes to binary stars, all kinds of cool stuff. To space whales. Space whales, yeah. All kinds of neat shit that our peers in the Battlefleet Gothic community have made. Um, so by all means, if you have those and you like what you see in them, feel free to include them in Battlefleet Heresy games. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. And I mean, mm-hmm. especially if you got any of you guys play uh, Adeptus Titanicus with some of the Battlefield stuff that can affect that and just how much it changes the game and kind of puts a new twist on what are on the face of them pretty simple scenarios. Uh, these do the same thing. So the more mm-hmm. random terrain, like the Book of Nemesis stuff, Warp Rift Magazine stuff, uh, you can throw in there. It just keeps life interesting. Yep. So I guess that's all we've got for this episode. Uh, tune in next week. We're going to talk about the Seventh Legion, the Imperial Fists, and we're going to spend some time talking about um, planetary defenses. We mentioned them briefly in our last episode when we talked about the Exterminatus scenario, but we're going to dig into them a little bit more with uh, the Imperial Fists, who are masters of the defense. Yeah, it'll be exciting. And also... uh we did recently, it's it's already out, so it'll probably be a couple of weeks ago now by the time this gets published. Uh, Steven and I sat down with Chris Mills from the Edge of Empire podcast. Uh, he was gracious enough to ask us on to talk some Battlefleet heresy. Uh, so if you, you know, are interested in hearing about the whys and how-fors and all of that, uh, you can tune in and give him a listen. It is a more traditional Battlefleet Gothic experience because, of course, he is British, uh, so there is a lovely English accent that you can listen to while listening yeah. to we'll us talk, talk about, about the metric system. We talk about the metric system, it's true. We talk about Imperial Fists and Iron Warriors and all sorts of fun stuff. It's a good time. We also we sing the praises of our sound man, sound men, Pat, uh, Pat and Jesse, several times. Mm-hmm. It's good times. We let you know who the real power behind the podcasting scene is. Yeah. And it's the guys with $200 worth of equipment. Oh, Jesse has far more than that. But we're not going to name names or numbers <laughs> in case Caro listens. <laughs> I was being conservative. Yes, only $200. He has at least one piece of $200 equipment. <laughs> Certainly. So, that's all we've got for you this week. Tune in next time. Uh, like I said, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite failures. Oh, The Banana Boys. Wait, no, not custodians. Psych. Jesus. Alrighty. Uh, this has been Lost Transmissions, and as always, good hunting. Master the winds of the western world With the waves through
Lord of lightning, Lord of storms. Hail Thor, Lord of thunders, master of the winds of the western world. Hail Thor, hammer wielder, Lord of lightning, Lord of storms. Draw the drops of the sky together, master of the winds of the western world. Break the back of burning weather, Lord of lightning, Lord of storms. Thanks for listening to another podcast from the Remembrancers Retreat. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. You can also find our swag store at teespring.com forward slash stores forward slash RR30K podcast. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at RR30K podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at remembrancers underscore retreat. You can also visit our website RR30K.com for podcast updates and the Battlefleet Heresy Compendium. You can also leave us a voicemail for us to play on a future podcast at 1929-437-3791. That's 1929-HERESY1. And you can also leave us an email at the Retreat at gmail.com. Thanks again.